We're going to continue Luke's theme about Christmas that he very intentionally wants to bring out to us, which is a bold, even intentionally controversial theme that Jesus is the king. We're going to press into that a little bit deeper this morning and look at a way to exalt Jesus as king in 2020 is to live awake, bold, and full of love. We'll get there. But I want to quickly recap the incendiary message of Luke from last week and how he sets us up to really wrestle with a question in our hearts about where is our true allegiance? Because that's something we all have to wrestle with. 2,000 years ago, they had to wrestle with it. Right now, today, in this world, we've got to wrestle with it. Who has our allegiance as king? So let's go to Luke chapter 1 real quick. This kingship theme is introduced in Luke 1.30 where the angel says to Mary that the baby in her womb will be great. He will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and of his kingdom there will be no end. But he isn't the only king. At the time of that writing, there is another king who actually sits on the throne in Rome. He is worshipped by choirs. The calendar year is shaped around his birth because he is the one who supposedly brought the good news of peace on earth to all people. And he is referred to as Savior and Lord. And his name is Caesar Augustus. And into that world, Jesus is born. And Luke wants us to know the context, to remember it, to feel it. So when the angels declare what Jesus is all about, it's supposed to be very provocative. Luke 2, chapter 11, or verse 11 to 14. The angels say, fear not. For behold, I bring you good news. In other words, I bring you the real good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and singing Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. So with the stroke of a pen and the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke is picking a fight. And we got to see it. He specifically uses all of the contemporary names and descriptors of the sitting king of the world. It says, not true. Those are lies. There's a real king, a real savior, a real Lord, a real bringer of peace on earth, a real one who's got the good news for all the people, a real one who deserves choirs to sing about him, and he's not Caesar Augustus. It's this little baby wrapped in a manger, or wrapped in swaddling clothes, found in a manger. So the first century reader would no doubt hear this and, and, and be offended or at least provoked of like, whoa, are you serious? Are you really saying that, Luke? Is that really how we're supposed to understand Jesus? As one who comes to dethrone the sitting king. This passage is supposed to be provocative. It's supposed to make us uncomfortable. I mean, you cannot be a first century reader living under the rule of Rome, who at the, at the time had essentially conquered, blood conquest, the whole known world. And you see that in the, the Gospels where the, the Roman centurions are present. It's occupied territory. This is war. This is conquest. They are a conquered people. 
They can lose their life for opposing the king, opposing the emperor. And Luke writes a, a, the fundamental worldview about who Jesus is. It's the one who comes to dethrone the sitting king. I mean, this has got to be uncomfortable. Why is it uncomfortable? Because to follow this king is to say, my allegiance is above the one who sits on the throne and can end my life with the sword. So the first century reader would see this. They would feel this. They would be provoked. They would be challenged. They would, they would have to wrestle through. Is it worth it? There's a sitting king. Is life under him really so bad? Because I'm being told by, by this gospel and by the, the angels, if I believe it, that I am supposed to put my allegiance, to put my trust in this little baby born to the outcasted Jews. And even among the outcasted Jews, born to a teen mother out of wedlock in a barn. And he's asking for my allegiance above the emperor. It's supposed to be hard and challenging. What does it look like for Jesus to be king in your life? That's what the passage is meant to provoke us to ponder. I mean, Luke starts off just bold. You, then you get to Jesus, and yeah, Jesus says some incredibly comforting things, some very gentle things, some very soothing and, and peaceful, comforting news. But Luke starts off and introduces Jesus in a way that is incredibly challenging. Gets right to the heart of where is our allegiance. And so fast forward 2,000 years, as we read this passage, it's still meant to challenge us. What and who has our allegiance in 2020? What does it look like for Jesus to be king in 2020? And so as we go through the Christmas season, that's something for us to, to ponder, to contemplate, to ask the Lord about, to wrestle with, to talk about with our family, to talk about in our community. And to exalt Jesus as king. So last week we put forth one way to make Jesus king, and today we want to continue in that same vein, but get a little bit more specific. Last week we asserted that you all, as a church family, are together collectively as a church body and family, demonstrating with great boldness that Jesus is king in our lives, and one way that looks is that we continue to gather in Jesus' name. Because if you haven't been reading the news, that's actually illegal right now. And so we're here, not just because we're trying to be contrarian, but because there is a real conviction about what does it mean to Jesus for Jesus to be king right now? And there's a lot going on in the world. And so with the reality that in the midst of the crisis that we're in, in our world, even the, the CDC has admitted that over 40% of adults are going through mental health crisis, if not emotional crisis, leading to substance abuse. And one in four young adults, 18 to 24, have contemplated suicide in the last 30 days. Those are some catastrophic numbers where we then get the conviction of this is absolutely not the time for the, to, for the church if we believe what we say. We believe that Jesus is the one true, present, and eternal hope. It's not the time for the church to shrink back, but the time for the church to find ways to, to boldly get together, encourage one another, lift each other up so that we can get out of those numbers, and then also share the light of Christ with the world. Did Jesus ever say that Oh, shine the light, except when nothing. So we got to figure out how to do that, and that's what we're trying to wrestle through. And again, we're not trying to, we're, we're not trying to 
be just contrarian. We're not trying to minimize people in, in where they're at with their health. We're not trying to say, oh, COVID doesn't exist. We have said from the beginning, we want to protect the vulnerable. God wants to protect the vulnerable. So if you're sick, stay home. If you're immunocompromised, protect yourself. We believe that the vulnerable should be protected. That's real. But there's more going on in God's word that our conviction says right now our king calls us to continue to gather. When does God say to stop gathering, stop being the church? God calls us to continue to gather, to worship, to pray, to encourage one another, to lift each other up, to help our minds be renewed with the truth and not just overwhelmed with the lies that we're hearing every day, to get filled with the spirit, to care for one another, to serve one another, to be filled up so that we can be ambassadors of God to the world, to our family, neighbors, community. And so, yes, taking care of the sick matters. Yes, protecting the vulnerable matters. We're not ignoring that. We're just saying that right here in 2020, COVID is not king. Jesus is still king. And so we've got to learn and we've got to wrestle through how to say, okay, if that's true, then COVID doesn't get to stop us from being the church. It doesn't get to stop us from being the king, Jesus being king. And we've got to wrestle through. And so that's last week we looked, and, and I, I, it's, it's an amazing thing. The, the science right now out there is, as mentioned last week, and this will be the last piece of review, there was a beautiful <laughs> pat on the back from science last week for the church to keep doing what you're doing because the world needs the light. And here it was in the Gallup poll, a Gallup poll published on December 7th. They take it at the end of every November. It's a... a Many years in the running, I guess. And the headline was, Americans' mental health ratings sink to a new low. That's a bummer. God wants his light to shine in the darkness. And it is. The percentage of the overall population who reported their mental health as excellent dropped almost 10% this year from 43 to 34%. That Lines up with the CDC numbers where over 40% of adults are going through mental or emotional crisis. And here's and we, there's a little graph. If you're not on the email list, talk to me. I'll get it to you. This is crazy. It's hard to see. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll explain it or I'll run through it real quick. In every single demographic that was studied and they broke down gender, so male and female, party identification, Republican, independent, Democrat, Religious service attendance, weekly, monthly, seldom, race, white, non-white, marital status, married, not married, age group, 18 to 29, 30 to 49, 50 to 64, 65 plus, household income, under 40, 40 to 99, 100 or 1,000 or more. Every single demographic declined in their mental health in 2020 except one, one. Weekly church participation. It's a beautiful thing, absolutely. And it's just science proving what we already know. The true dedication to God will make your life profoundly better, even in the midst of crisis, even in the midst of struggle. It doesn't mean that there aren't real struggles this year, but God wants us to thrive in the midst of challenges. And that's what I loved about this affirming that God's light can shine in the darkness. And it just reinforces the reality that this is not the time to hide the light under the bushel, but to find ways to be awake, to be bold, and to share that love. And that's what I want to get into today, a bit more specific. To exalt Jesus as king in 2020 means that we live awake, bold, and full of love. The Apostle Paul said it like this, that he was so full of God's love that that had the reality of who God is, his salvation, the promises of God for the present and the future in our life was the motivating force in his life. He said it like this, 2 Corinthians 5, 14. The love of Christ compels us because we have concluded this, that there is one that has died for all. And therefore, all have died. 
And if he died for all, those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died. So putting Jesus as king in 2020, filter that into this passage, wrestle through with it. He is saying that Jesus died for all so that we could die to ourselves and come into the abundant life of Christ. We don't just live for ourselves anymore. We live for others. Why? Because we're wildly taken care of by Christ. He died for us. He's got our our present and our future in his hands. We have the, the helmet of salvation on, the hope of salvation on. And so now that love that transformed our life, is meant to compel us to be able to live sacrificially, to pour out to others. And that's never meant to stop. And so to be full of love in this year is a way that we can put Jesus as king. And I honestly just want to say thank you to the church. You guys are encouraging me as you encourage one another because we are... Not perfect people, and we're wrestlers, and we're strugglers, but I see a lot of really good fruit. This this, uh, study from the Gallup poll is not a surprise to me. As I talked last week, it just affirms our reality. Even said, I feel like at times I live in this weird bubble because I get to hang around with you people, and there's so much hope. There's so much real peace. There's so much joy. There's a thriving in the midst of the storms. There's breakthrough that sometimes when I go out in the world come home and tell my wife, like, wow, there's a bubble that we live in. But it's not. It's, well, it is. It's a bubble of, it's called grace. It's God's goodness. It's the Holy Spirit. It's people that are, that are wrestling through, I want to make Jesus king. And we don't have to do it perfectly for there just to be this abundant grace still working and flowing and transforming. And some of the ways that I see that specifically that that we are letting love compel us. I just want to name a few right now. This church has continued to look outward to serve, like this verse says, that don't just live for yourselves. That's what fear says right now, right? I mean, it's sad when a a meme for the year, a way to understand the, the year and the ethos of what's going on is to look at an empty toilet paper aisle, right? You all know what I'm talking about. That's the year 2020. That's where we're at as a society. Is it like, I'm putting, oh my gosh, I'm so scared of the future. I'm putting my hope in toilet paper. If I have that, then maybe I'll get through this. And it's good to have toilet paper. I'm not knocking teepee. But that's so far from the love of Christ compels me to live for other people to serve, to even be sacrificial. I genuinely want to say I'm seeing it. Keep encouraging one another with those stories. Keep sharing the stories. I I feel like the privilege of hearing so many stories of in the midst of the storm, we're thriving. In the midst of the storm, we see this breakthrough. So share those with each other when they happen. It's so good to hear. For example... From the moment that there was a lockdown and the Menifee Valley community cupboard over there had their volunteer team just wiped out because they were primarily older folks. And so the the distribution of food to the the poor in our city was, was threatening to be closed. And there were some local food banks in the cities next to us that closed because of lack of volunteers. And we had like 20 or more people in this church say, no, 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 not on our watch, that's not going to happen. And they went over there, and for the last almost nine months, there's been a team that's been there weekly, two days a week, just serving others. And that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. We've had people that have gone over to the domestic violence shelter, a group of guys on a couple different occasions, just continuing to serve, to go and, and say, hey, in the midst of the chaos, how can we continue to serve those in our community who Really need it. Guys stepped up, no problem. We've seen the youth continue to try to find ways to, to serve. They, they rounded up a bunch of turkeys and, and teamed up with the Menifee Valley community covered on Thanksgiving to deliver a bunch of turkeys to, to families in needs. You guys all stepped up 
and we filled up a couple boxes for the toys of the Spark of Love, partnering with the city there. We all supported the new police department. A bunch of people went out on, on mid, at midnight on the, the July 1st to, to pray for our police department. We had the privilege of seeing our, our incoming police chief receive those prayers and then pray himself uh, for the city and the police. We've joined with other churches and gone out on number numerous times and, and prayed for the city, gone to the, the footsteps of City Hall and, and prayed together, finishing up that time worshiping together. We've gone out into the, into the neighborhood, into the parks and, and had nights of worship to just say, guys, come and hear the sound of heaven. Jesus is the hope in 2020. We've gathered together with a number of churches including then the, the mayor and some city council people and the police chief to put on a, a love and unity march to say, yeah, this church is against racism. God's heart is for justice and reconciliation. And we marched out together. We've got a group of awesome guys out there who come early every Sunday and take a bunch of time in either the heat or the cold to, to set up the patio seating faithfully. Love those guys out there. The youth have continued to have a great group of volunteers to serve them every Wednesday to pour into their lives. The kids' crew is back up running again. The band is up here faithfully serving. The audiovisual crew is back there faithfully serving. The life groups are running. The life groups are vibrant. They're as big as they've ever been. The prayer team is here faithfully every week to serve. Each one of those things at some level takes risks takes a risk and involves us looking outside of ourselves in order to be compelled with the love of Christ and serve others. And it's happening. One other really tangible way is that the giving at Elevation has even increased this year in the, in the midst of people hoarding toilet paper. <laughs> I mean, talk about a mindset, right? I'm so scared about the future. So for giving to increase here. At our last finance team meeting, they're like, you have to talk about this. I'm like, I don't really like talking about finances. They're like, well, you have to talk about this. All right, well, I'll talk about toilet paper. Most people are hoarding toilet paper and elevation is increasing in their generosity to the point that the first time in several years, we've been able to put money in our savings to the tune of like $9,000. That's never happened before in 10 years of being a church and it happened in the middle of the pandemic. Come on, God. That's awesome. And on that note, I have had the privilege to hear multiple testimonies of God's provision and generosity for you all that in the midst of the mess of this year, many of you have gotten pay raises at work, promotions at work, new jobs at work. It's stuff that it's like, that is not lining up with the narrative. And I think God's message is, that's the point. It's never going to. I don't want it to. I want you to be that graph that sticks out in the midst of everything else going downhill. When you follow me, life gets more and more abundant. And part of that abundance, part of that living compelled by love, requires a couple things. And I want to highlight them, and then we'll be done for the day. To live compelled by love, we've got to be awake, and we've got to be bold. So when I mean awake, I, re I, re mean, I mean refer to sober. Ephesians 11, or 4, 11 to 14, talks about this, and so does 1 Thessalonians, and so I want to read these two verses and challenge us in this time to be thinking through what does it look like to be sober about the world we live in? Because something doesn't add up right now. Not everything we're being told is the truth or the whole truth. And the Bible warns us in many places that that is going to be what takes place. So there is a sobriety. There is a being awake to the reality of the forces that are at work. So here's the Bible on it. Ephesians 4, 11 to 14. God gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. The point of this passage is God gave gifts in his church. 
For what purpose? Verse 12. To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So let me back up. That's why we meet. <laughs> That's why. That's why we don't stop. It says God has put gifts within the church body, let me paraphrase, that you don't have on your own, by yourself, in isolation, flying solo, just me and God. Now, where you're flying is way outside of a biblical picture of a Christian, if that's where you're flying. None of you are flying there. So God gave gifts within the church for what purpose? To equip the body. To do what? To become like Jesus. It's literally what it says. That's why God gave gifts. That's why we gather together. You can't equip one another and encourage one another when you're not together. Or it happens at a much, much smaller scale. So God gave gifts to equip each other so that we can be like Jesus. And this is for everybody. This is not for the superstars. This is not for the special ones. This is not for the full-time ministry people. No, no, no. This is for everybody. This book of Ephesians was written as a general letter to the whole church. Anybody who will listen. Your destiny is to become more like Jesus. And it happens through one another. And when that happens, then now we've got something to share with the world. Something worth sharing with the world. Because little old me on my own, little old you on your own, that's, that's not going to change the world. Jesus in you, growing in maturity, is like a powerful light that will shine in darkness. So we've got to stay together. And here's part of what happens in verse 14. So that, as we become like Jesus through one another, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human trickery, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Now, I'm generally an optimist, and so I don't like to think of the world in this way, but let's not be naive. The Bible specifically says there are dark forces in the world operating in humans and they are trying to trick you there are deceitful schemes humans are operating under the influence of darkness to try to trick you schemes that will deceive you The NLT says it like this, New Living Translation in verse 14 says, We will not be influenced when people try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like truth. So part of being sober and awake is just accepting the reality that there are forces in the world putting forth intentionally and unintentionally lies so clever they sound like truth. If we just grab onto them, we will be deceived. So we got to be sober. And 1 Thessalonians says it like this, 5 to 8. For you are all children of the light and of the day. We don't belong to the darkness and the night. So be on your guard, not asleep like others. Stay alert. Be clear-headed. Night is the time when people sleep and drinkers get drunk. But let us who live in the light be clear-headed, protected by the armor of faith and love and wearing as our helmet the confidence of our salvation. Part of being sober is being on guard, alert, awake to the reality and the type of crafty schemes that are out there that people do to intentionally or unintentionally deceive. And so part of our confidence Great word in there, confidence. Part of our confidence to let the love of Christ compel us is that we also, wise as serpents, innocent as doves, Jesus says, that we're sober. Not everything we hear is true. And so I want to talk specifically for a moment about how we are not being told the clear whole truth about 
the, the reality that has completely changed our world and locked everybody down in, with the virus. I'm not saying again, the virus doesn't exist. I'm not saying it's not real. We should protect the vulnerable. Stay home if you're sick. Get better. But there are some things that should cause us to say this is not all adding up. We got to be sober. So in August, the CDC reported that 94% of the, at the time, what were being tabulated at COVID deaths have had multiple comorbidities. What does that mean? So they have a table that says that there are health, con health conditions that contribute to the causes with death. And for 6% of the deaths, this is back in August, COVID was the only cause for deaths with conditions or causes in addition to COVID-19, on average, there were 2.6 additional conditions or causes per death, the following being the top underlying medical conditions, influenza and pneumonia, respiratory failure, lung failure, hypertensive disease, heart issues, diabetes. So 94% of the COVID deaths have almost three additional causes. Again, it's not saying people didn't die, but there's deeper things going on now. Of, so what does that mean if 94% of the deaths that say COVID on the death, death certificate had additional serious underlying health conditions? So Dr. Mark McDonald said it like this. 94% of the COVID deaths had an average of three comorbidities over half were more than 80 years old, while the U.S. life expectancy is 79, meaning, and this is a little harsh, but doctors do that, meaning they were probably going to pass away anyways within, within the next 6 to 12 months. And that's, that's, I mean, that's, you know, it's rough language and not minimizing the importance. But it plays into a much bigger picture. For example, John Hopkins University professor Genevieve Bryan, she's the program director for applied economics in the master's degree pro program at Johns Hopkins. She critically, critically analyzed these numbers and the effects of COVID-19 on the overall numbers of deaths in the U.S. this year. And she used the CDC data that was published by the CDC. And what she found is that COVID has not increased the total number of deaths in the United States compared to past years. So we got to think about that. With all that's going on, all the lockdowns that have taken place, all the thousands and thousands of businesses that are forever destroyed, the global effect that that's going to have, which we'll talk about in a minute, all the kids that aren't going to school, the 40% or more of adults that are in a really bad place emotionally, the 25% of young adults that are contemplating suicide, and the numbers show that even in the midst of the COVID issue, the overall death numbers have not risen in the United States from last year. So what is going on? And her ultimate observation was that essentially the deaths are being recategorized. So as last year, it was these amount of people died from influenza, pneumonia, respiratory failure, heart disease, diabetes, 94% of those essentially are simply now, now they're COVID. Again, not trying to minimize, but trying to get a sober picture. How come the news isn't saying in the midst of all this, the same amount of people are dying this year in the U.S. as last year? Would that change things? So her conclusion was all of this points to no evidence that COVID-19 created any excess deaths. Total death numbers are not above normal death numbers. And she used the CDC's numbers to say this. These findings were published on the John Hopkins website for four days. And then the page was deleted. You can look this up. This is not a joke. It's funny. It's not funny. It's, it, it would be funny if, it, if all of these other effects weren't taking place. I mean, it's, it's, there are drastic, horrible things taking place. 
So why was it taken down? Well, it doesn't fit the narrative. Look at John Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center homepage. And here's a map. A global map of coronavirus cases. This looks like a movie about one of those deadly plagues that is going to wipe out all of human existence. Doesn't it? Like you've seen those movies, right? Like some plague or something, and they show like a simulation of like, oh, it's an outbreak, it's a spread, and like, it's going to suck up and just destroy the whole world. That is, that's the homepage for the Coronavirus Resource Center on John Hopkins University. What's the message? You're all going to die. While less than one-tenth of one percent of the U.S. population has passed. It's about a message. And, and it wouldn't be so concerning if there weren't such drastic effects on the other end. For example, the United Nations published a, a study in, back in August, and so it's probably only worse now, that due to the economic slowdown of the lockdown, an estimated 71 million people are ex worldwide are expected to be pushed back into extreme poverty in 2020. That's the first time in over, since 1998, in over 20 years, that's the first time that global, global poverty will rise. And what that means on the practical level is that the most vulnerable people in the world are now being pushed from just barely making it, sustained day by day at that poverty level where they, they just have enough to feed their family. They're now 71 million people pushed back into extreme poverty, which literally means they have no security of where their next meal will come from. 71 million people are now literally, and probably more, because this was August, pushed to the brink of starvation and death. They don't have the means to feed their family or get medical care if it's needed. 71 million people. So far, the global cases of COVID deaths, even if you count all the numbers at the highest levels, which we talked about earlier, are suspect to really give COVID all the credit. But give COVID all the credit, 1.6 million worldwide deaths. Let me put it differently. In other words, global hunger is going to kill 40 times as many people as COVID is going to kill because of the economic slowdown. So are we really about saving lives? You stay home, save lives. No, actually staying home and saving lives and causing the trickle effect of the global economy shutting down is going to kill 40 times as many people as COVID is going to kill. So stay home, save lives. This, this doesn't add up. Not saying it's not real. I'm saying we've got to be sober. There's more to it. And then on the, finally, on this note, part of what we see that to me gives me boldness <laughs> to continue to live outwardly for Christ is the way that our leaders are responding. While they say, stay at home, it's deadly for you and for others, they do quite the opposite. So there was, right after the, the governor issued the order to stay home and save lives, don't have Thanksgiving. You remember that one? You know, don't meet with your families. Oh, if you have to, like maybe three households, meet outside, bring takeout, don't share the mashed potatoes, sit separately, make little circles and tables, no more than two hours, don't sing. And if you're going to sing, only one family can sing. Don't have Thanksgiving. That's really, if, you, if you're a noble person, if you have virtues, just don't do Thanksgiving. That's the message. You're a bad person if you do. Stay home, save lives. Otherwise, you're just this, you don't care about people. You're going to kill people. And then, shortly after that, within less than a week, 10 California lawmakers from all political parties took a trip together to Maui. <laughs> for an economic policy, policy conference. And we, we can debate the, merit, the merits of that one, but how about the reality that we have the governor having a larger than Thanksgiving, larger than most people's Thanksgiving party, 22 people 
over $15,000 indoors, sitting right next to the health advisors that made the laws that say if your family member is dying from COVID in the hospital, you can't see them. And they're sitting there, no masks, rubbing shoulders, laughing. Here, he, I don't care about the hypocrisy. I expect that. Here's the deeper and darker truth. They're not scared of what they're telling you to be scared of. They're not. They're not scared of what they're telling you to be deadly. They're not scared of what they are putting over the whole state, if not nation, as this, this demonic fear of people. It's really hard to love people if you're scared of them, right? That, that takes it right away. If, if, if you're a threat to me, it's really hard for me to be compelled by love. I mean, just think about that. Walking through the store, walking through wherever. Look what's happened to humanity. Every single other person is a threat. You might carry the deadly disease that's going to end my life. I mean, I was in the grocery store, and this happened just not very long ago. I was in the checkout aisle, and I had pulled my little mask down because I was tired of breathing my taco breath for, la- for an hour. And it was hot, and it was nauseating. And so I just accidentally kind of put it below my nose to get a little fresh air. And this woman at the next aisle over t- saw me, and, and she literally ran screaming, Oh, my God, you're mad! And she ran. And I, I feel bad for that lady. I'm not, I'm not ripping on that lady. That, that is a, a paralyzing fear that we're being told we should have if we're moral people. And the danger in that is when I fear you, I don't love you. If you're a physical threat to me, I mean, you, there's w- really hard to be compelled by love. And that's what we're being told. And there's no end to it. Fear the other. They will probably, or they might, there's a good chance, depending on how close you get, they might kill you. And the thing that just enrages me is our leaders who are making these policies, they don't even believe that. They don't even believe it. They're not scared of what they are making us deathly afraid of. So that helps me be bold. When when that article came out, I said, thank you, sir. I appreciate that very much. Encourages me to be bold. If you can be bold and to run up a $15,000 bar tab for a night with 22 people, I can be bold for Jesus. Thank you very much. Move on. And again, this is hard. This is a weird message. I'm not trying to like be overly political. I'm certainly not trying to be partisan. I'm just trying to say in, in this weird world that we live, what are some of those things that are affecting us every day? Just like Luke pointed out, hey, you know what? Caesar Augustus is affecting your life every day. So you should, you should probably think about him. Is he really your savior? Is he really your Lord? Is he really the one you should share good news about? Is he really the one worth singing about? Is he really the one that brought peace to all the earth? So he was feisty in saying, where's your allegiance? And so honestly, I'm just, I, I, I actually hate talking about this blech stuff. But it's, it's where we're at, is it not? Is it not what we're forced to wrestle with every day and what we're forced to think about and be told about and, and, and it comes at us? So it's like, okay, well, what does it look like to make Jesus king? And part of it is be sober. Again, not dismissing, but saying, let's be wise about it. What are the bigger picture pieces going on? And lastly, part of this goes right together, is we've got to be bold. Love takes risk. And that's a challenge. There is grace for where we're at. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God's word clearly says. So if you're challenged by it, let the grace flow. But be challenged. Love takes risk. Boldness takes risk. A man came up to Jesus in Mark chapter 1. He had leprosy. He came and he knelt in front of Jesus, begging to be healed. If you are willing, you can heal me and make me clean. Moved with compassion, Jesus reached out and touched him. I am willing. Be healed. Instantly, the leprosy disappeared and a man was healed. This is no accident what's going on here. The disease that at the time was thought to be the most contagious, irreversibly slow, painful, 
often fatal. It was called a living death. So these folks were excommunicated. They were untouchables. They were outcasts. And it's not a coincidence that in the very first miracle of Jesus in the book of Mark, this disgusting, disease-filled, contagious person comes up to Jesus and says, will you touch me? Jesus says, I'm going to touch you. The question for us is, is that, is that fantasy? Is that a fantasy in the sense of like, oh, it's just Jesus doing his Sunday school stuff. So amazing. Or is he modeling the sacrificial nature of love that is willing to not just think about yourself, but to serve others, but to wrestle through the bold ways that God's calling you to let love, not fear, compel you. Paul actually lived it out as well in Acts 28, where he said, or the story goes, now in the neighborhood of that place where the lands belong, so they get shipwrecked on the island of Malta. They end up in the neighborhood of the chief of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that the father of Publius lay sick with a fever and dysentery. Okay, if you have a fever, you're contagious. With a disease or a sickness or whatever. Paul visited him, and he prayed, and he put his hands on him and he healed him that was nice of Paul touched a diseased person touched a sick person touched a person with a fever all right well that was like one you know one little time then it's over right wash his hands get out of there oops one more verse when this had taken place the rest of the people on the island who had diseases came and were cured That's, that's, that's challenging to me. We should be challenged. There is a sacrificial nature to love when the love of Christ compels us. What did that verse say? It's a challenging one. 2 Corinthians. For the love of Christ compels us. We've concluded the one who's died for all, therefore all have died and he died for all, that those who live might, not, no, might no longer live for themselves. But for him, who for the sake of all, has died and raised. That, to me, friends, is, is a really challenging idea for 2020. That the love of Christ is sacrificial, but it's not modeled by Christ in this fantasy way where it's only for Jesus and not for us. The early church did this well too, and we'll be done. I've mentioned this before, but it's, it's worth mentioning as just a, a historical legacy. If that was the people of God, I might not be there yet. And again, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So it's wrestled through what does this look like for you in your life right now to be compelled by love, sacrificial love, and not by fear. In the second and third centuries in the Roman Empire, as we've talked about before, there were devastating plagues went through. They, his, historians say that's probably measles, probably smallpox. But up to a quarter of the population of the Roman Empire was wiped out. A quarter. So, so translate that in, into our world today. That's, what, 85 million Americans? At this point, there's 300,000 Americans have lost their lives to COVID and the comorbidities that have gone with it. 300,000, less than one-tenth of one percent. And we're talking if these things were to hit America today, it would be 80 million people. Can you imagine the chaos in our world if 80 million people, one in four bodies lined up in the streets, un uncontrollable? I mean, I don't think our world would make it. And what did the Christians do? in the middle of these, both of these devastating plagues, they let their light shine. It is historically verifiable by many sources that while most of the people that had means literally just ran away into the hills, 
with their toilet paper to protect their lives. Christians stayed in the epicenters of the disease and they served the suffering. Some of them lost their lives. Many, 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 many came to Christ. And you can even look back at the numbers of Christians who passed away and the Christian mortality rate was far lower than the quote-unquote pagan mortality rate. So figure what's happening there. But by the time it was all said and done, over those two centuries, the ratio of Christians in the Roman world went from 250 to 1 to 1 in 4. And from that point forward, the momentum of the church just continued to build and build, still while underground and illegal and persecuted, into this world-changing force. You could make a really good argument that it was the sober, sacrificial love that of love of Christ that compelled the early church to serve, even at times the great cost to themselves, that literally should be credited with the world changing for Jesus in the most dramatic way we've ever seen. And again, I'm not, I'm not trying to prescribe this is what you have to do in this time and context. This is the, the historical reality of our church, of the legacy of the people of God, of the biblical narratives that challenge us in 2020. What does it look like to let the love of Christ compel us and that we're sober and that we're bold? And this is an open-ended question, honestly. We're not supposed to necessarily have the answer today. Wrestle with it. Let the Lord work on your heart. This is that song that we sang. You know, I surrender all. I give it all to you. That's not just a one-time thing. It's not an easy answer. Sometimes it's a wrestling and a process. There's abundant grace for that. Bring other people in. Share it. Have them pray for you. Pray with you. And I know that God will continue to help this people of God and the people of God that we have influence on shine like that silly little graph from Barna, but in great measure, shine his light in the darkness because Jesus is king. So let's pray. Yep. Dance a new dance like David